us this morning. We are going to get started. I'm going to open with prayer, and our discussion today is on chapter 6 of Christ of the Covenants, uh, dealing with Adam, the covenant of commencement. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Well, gracious Lord our God, we thank you that you are the one who speaks into our sin. You speak a word of grace and redemption. You speak a word of triumph through Christ over all the enemies Uh, yours and ours. We thank you, Lord, for subduing us to yourself, for being our king, uh, ruling and reigning over us. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we read and study your word today. Help us as we read Genesis uh, to see that first gospel already in the garden and the way that it points to our Savior, Christ Jesus. Help us to rejoice in him. Teach us to walk in faithfulness to you. Teach us to understand and to love your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can all see, I am breaking my own rule. I told you at the beginning of this uh, class that I was going to be leading a low-tech class, that we would just be talking to one another. Uh, But uh, I'm using this as a crutch this week, and hopefully you'll see why there's something that I'd like to talk about uh, and do with you uh, just to explain a little bit or, or to tease out not just what it is we're studying, but, but why we're studying this way uh, and what it means for us to look at these successive covenants, administrations of the covenant of grace. And so that's one of the reasons that we're doing this today. But we're going to take a little bit of time uh, first and look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Now, as we get into these, uh, these administrations, these you know, uh, revelations of the covenant, one of the things that we'll find is that we're dealing with specific texts, mostly. Uh, That we're not just trying to wrap our mind around everything that the scripture might have to say about the covenant of grace, uh, but we're looking at individual points and parts of uh, this larger story. And so we will have the benefit of actually having a text in front of us that we can refer to, that we can study together, Uh, and that we can interact with together. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. And uh, you know the the background. In fact, I recently preached on this. So bonus points for you if you still have some sermon notes. Um, But uh, yeah, let's read together. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, as we read that text, and specifically as we read that text and think about God's covenant of grace, uh, it may strike you as not a very gracious passage. (laughs) There is this refrain, cursed are you, cursed is the ground, cursed are these things. God is stepping in uh, to humanity's first sin, and declaring the consequences of breaking a covenant. Uh, but as we find, as we read uh, the chapter on Robertson and his, uh, his comments on this text, there is both curse and blessing. And so just to give a, a very quick overview before we get into some of the, the details, uh, his, his text, uh, the chapter 6 in Robertson this week, uh, is arranged around the three different parts of this passage that we just read, where God speaks a word to the serpent, He speaks a word to the woman, then he speaks a word to the man. We see in that word to the serpent that there is no blessing whatsoever. It is all curse. It is unmitigated curse. 
Uh, it is all uh, judgment coming upon the serpent, but it's also judgment that extends beyond the serpent itself, and we can get into that if you want to. Uh, the serpent as a tool used by Satan. Uh, it goes beyond the serpent himself or itself uh, to Satan who is behind that. Satan who is this prime enemy of God and of his, uh, of his designs and the creation that he's made and is now bringing in uh, a, a, a uh, how could we say it? Um, a, a disunity between the creator and his creation. Before there is complete unity, they follow, they obey, they observe, they're fruitful, uh, and now there is this disjoint between man and creator. And so the curse uh, that God declares on the serpent and extending to Satan himself and to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent uh, is enmity. Uh, it is a fitting retribution. Uh, through the serpent, Satan has brought enmity between God and man, and so God curses the serpent with enmity, with, uh, with this uh, sort of antagonism uh, between the serpent and the seed and Satan and the woman and the seed and the ultimate seed who will to come. And you saw that uh, if you read chapter 6 in preparation. You can see that also uh, in the handout that I've given you there, these three levels of enmity. But then when we get into dealing with the woman and with the man, uh, it's maybe hidden uh, in the way that you see it when you, when you first read it. Uh, but Robertson points out that there is not only curse for the woman and for the man, but there's curse and there's blessing. And so when we deal with the woman first, the, the blessing is that she will give birth. Uh, in fact, you notice it's not until after this episode where God comes in and brings the judgment of death uh, that he said would come if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not until immediately after this, verse 20, we didn't read it, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. There is blessing in the midst of this curse. This curse should have brought death and did bring death, and yet in the midst of it, God says, you will bring forth children. However, there's curse. Uh, there is curse in increasing pain and childbearing, uh, there is curse in an imbalance in the marriage relationship, and we can see the way that those things play out, uh, not just in the first couple, but throughout history. The same thing happens with the man. There is blessing uh, that he will eat. Uh, he will still have sustenance. He will still be provided for, even though he will be driven out with his family from the garden where everything was provided. Uh, but there is this, uh, Robertson talks later about this introduction of what we might sometimes call common grace. Uh, Adam brought a curse not only upon himself and upon his wife, but upon all creation. The entire created order has been affected by what Adam brought into creation, and we would expect that curse to extend to all of creation, and yet what we see is God's uh, common grace to give life and sustenance and food uh, to the, the people he's created so that they may continue to live, even in the face of uh, their impending death. But there is curse as well. The curse for Adam uh, is increased pain uh, and difficulty in his labor and eventually death. And so we see that in, uh, in verses 17 to 19 that he, uh, he has to, uh, where is it, by the sweat of his face he shall eat bread. So he has to, to toil and thistles and thorns the ground shall uh, bring forth for him. And so uh, it's not that, that labor itself is the curse. Labor was there. We saw it in, in the chapter on uh, the covenant of works, that labor is a creation ordinance. It's a good thing. Uh, it was created as an inherently good thing, but now cursed uh, because of Adam. And so that's just a very quick overview of the chapter. Hopefully you read that. And we're going to come back uh, to talking about the details of this chapter. But before we get there, uh, I, I want to engage in a little uh, activity together. This is something that, that uh, unashamedly I have taken from Stephen Barry. In fact, when we told, uh, when Stephen found out he's on sabbatical, so he wasn't a part of the session discussion on deciding to do this book. Uh, when he found out that we were doing Christ of the Covenants, he says, oh, I do this thing in my classes, and you need to do this with a Sunday school class, because it illustrates perfectly what Robertson is doing in teaching us the covenant of grace, and the various covenant administrations uh, that the Lord gives throughout Scripture. And so Steve says what he does is he takes a picture, and he, he shows it to his class, 
and he simply asked them to describe it. What do they see in this picture? If at any point you recognize this picture, do not give it away. Uh, it's an oil painting from the 18th century. It's pretty popular, pretty, uh, pretty well known. Uh, but let's get started uh, here. What do you see in this image? How would you describe it? This is not a trick question. Tell me what's in the picture. What does it evoke? What does it describe to you? Can you see it? It's a sailboat. Okay, here's a nautical scene. It's a ship. Okay. Okay. So it's a ship in dock. I'm sorry, what was that question, Teresa? Well, that's, that's another part of the picture that we haven't gotten to yet. Right? So what, uh, what, if you were to see just this image hanging in a gallery, what, uh, I'm not an art buff, what does it evoke when you see it? What, what's the, uh, what's the um, emotional response? Is this a, a bright and happy picture? Is this a dark and ominous picture? Is it, what would you say? Excuse me? Adventure? Okay, could be an adventure. Good point. Nice details. Ronnie? Okay, so there are some gray clouds up ahead, but in the, in the distance there is the sun poking out. Maybe as things clear. Okay. Now another vignette from this same image. Now what do you see? Does it change your perception of the picture? It's a different section. I've divided the main image into pieces. This is another piece of the same larger picture. What, what does this describe to you? Teresa said adventure earlier, and this could be an adventure. Okay, so he's got his harpoon out there. He's killing an animal. Okay. And seeing different pieces of the same picture, how does it change your perception? Doing work. Okay. Could be a rope. I assure you it's a harpoon. You maybe can't see it in the shadows, but there's a there's a harpoon at the end of uh, at the end of that there. Something is going to die. All right, finally, the whole picture together. <clears throat> the whole picture together, and you may have already recognized it. <clears throat> this is Watson and the Shark by John Singleton Copley. Uh, and once you see all of the pieces together, it gives you a much different idea of what's going on. And once you know the backstory, so he is indeed trying to kill something, and what he's trying to kill is that shark in the bottom right, and the other men are frantically trying to save this gentleman who has fallen into the water, apparently gone for a swim in the nude. Uh, but, uh, but there he is trying to escape the shark and his friends helping him out. Uh, and once you know a little bit more about the picture, uh, not only what you see and what you see in the individual pieces, but when you know a little bit more about the background, it helps you to understand it. So here's the overview. Uh, this is taken from the National Gallery of Art. Uh, where, where this painting is kept, I think down where in Texas somewhere. It says, Watson and the Sharks exhibition at the Royal Academy in 1778 generated a sensation, partly because such a grisly subject was an absolute novelty. In 1749, 14-year-old Brooke Watson had been attacked by a shark while swimming in Havana Harbor. Copley's pictorial account of the traumatic ordeal shows nine seamen rushing to help the boy, while the bloody water proves that he has just lost his right foot. To lend equal believability to the setting, Copley, who had never visited the Caribbean, consulted maps and prints of Cuba. Now, uh, it also says that the rescuers' anxious expressions and actions reveal both concern for their thrashing companion and a growing awareness of their own peril. Time stands still as the viewer is forced to ponder Watson's fate. Miraculously, he was saved from almost certain death and went on to become a successful British merchant and politician. So he's a well-known person. Uh, and this is, when you first see it, 
uh, even just looking at the whole image, that dude's a goner. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> there's nothing else you can think of, but blood in the water, he's lost his right foot, uh, this guy is toast. Uh, but there's a larger picture that's going on here. Now, why do I bring this up? Uh, well, because when we're dealing with each of the individual aspects of the covenant of grace, there are times when all we see is this. Okay? There are times that we see some aspects of the covenant of grace uh, that, that we would be challenged to see the whole picture, and yet it is part of a larger whole. And that's Robertson's argument, really, is, as he goes through. We've seen this. We've discussed this already. And so maybe we should have done this exercise earlier on when we were discussing the unity and the diversity of the covenants. There are different uh, vantage points from which we can see it. There are different, uh, different pieces of the puzzle as it gets put together for us. Uh, but it really does come together all in one picture. And so this is something that we need to understand when we're dealing with say, God's covenant with Adam in the garden versus God's covenant with Noah uh, after the flood versus the Mosaic covenant versus all of the different administrations of the covenant of grace, that what we're dealing with is continuing progressive revelation. God is building and showing us more of the picture, and we are moving into a fullness of understanding of what the Lord is doing with his people. And so this is the idea of the unity and diversity, what we need to understand that this is not covenant replacement. In fact, we talked about that last time, the fact that God has brought the covenant of works into being, in creation, and Adam has broken that, and yet the covenant of works still stands. We are still condemned by the covenant of works. And Christ, by his obedience and by his sacrifice, has fulfilled all that we needed to fulfill in the covenant of works. So even the covenant of works is not rescinded, but rather God initiates a new promise to fulfill all that he desires to give to his people through the covenant of grace. So this is not covenant replacement, but rather this is continuing progressive revelation. We're seeing another piece of the same picture as God reveals it little by little. In fact, here's what Robertson says, very opening sentence of chapter 6 that we read for today. The first declaration of the covenant of redemption contains in seed form every basic principle which manifests itself subsequently. Now we're going to see when we get to Abraham, he's going to talk about land, he's going to talk about seed, he's going to talk about faith, he's going to talk about all sorts of things. But what we're going to see in chapter 6, what we've already seen a little bit of, uh, is that, that God is already showing us what he's doing, and he's giving us enough of the picture uh, that we can grow into an understanding as scripture unfolds. And that brings up an interesting uh, discussion as well, uh, and that is the distinction between the way we read scripture and the way we study scripture, and the difference between what we know as systematic theology and what we know as biblical theology. These are two very closely related disciplines. Uh, typically, when we read scripture, when we study it, when you hear a sermon, when you go to a Bible study, we don't think about the distinction of these things, right? We're just talking about God's word. We're just studying scripture. We're just seeing what God has done. But there are different ways to approach scripture. And systematic and biblical theology are two distinct ways. What we're doing in going through Christ of the Covenants is biblical theology. That means... Uh, of course, all theology ought to be biblical, right? So when we say biblical theology, we're not talking about biblical theology versus mystic theology, where we just sit in a room and we dream up what God might be doing. No, no, no. Biblical theology is dealing with God's revelation as it appears throughout history. And so it might take a small slice, like God's covenant with Adam in the garden, and say, what do we see here specifically, right? That first picture of just uh, that merchant ship in the Havana Harbor. What do you see here? And you're, you're seeing that as one piece of the larger picture. Dave, you going to add to that? <laughs> okay. That's right, yeah. Uh, so systematic theology, the, the good way to, to understand it uh, is that systematic theology tries to systematize what we know from all of God's revelation, right? And so we take 
uh, everything that God has revealed about the covenant of grace, and we try to boil it down into one paragraph, and that is Westminster Confession of Faith 7.3. That's a systematic treatment. Man having become or made himself incapable of obtaining life by this covenant, God was pleased to make another wherein he offers life and salvation, and I don't remember the, the rest of the language specifically. Uh, but, but systematic theology tries to say, what do we know about this doctrine after we have surveyed the whole of God's word? Right? So systematic theology builds on and grows out of good biblical theology. When you're listening to a sermon, it starts as biblical theology. What does this text say? What do we see here? What are the aspects that are drawn out? But if you're listening to a good sermon, it also becomes systematic theology as we step back and we see the larger picture. When we're talking through Robertson and we're dealing with God's covenant with Adam in the garden, right now we're doing biblical theology, but that is insufficient if we never step back and look at the bigger picture, right? In fact, here's Vern Poitras. Here's how he uh, summarizes. He says, biblical theology studies the Bible with a focus on its history, the history of revelation and redemption. Whereas systematic theology is topically organized, biblical theology is historically organized. It looks at the progress of God's work and his revelation through time. Now, here's an example from the text that we're looking at. Here's a good one. Who is the serpent? Who is the serpent? What does he represent? What does he reveal in Genesis chapter 3? And there are biblical theologians who would want to look at that and want to tease out, well, how exactly did the first readers understand it? Here are the people who've come out of Egypt with Moses, and Moses is, for the first time, writing down the creation account, which certainly they all knew by heart and by, by repetition, but Moses is writing it down, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring it. And, and the biblical theologian, uh, the Old Testament theologian, we might say, would want to say, well, what did they understand? It doesn't say that Satan was there. It doesn't say that the serpent was a tool of Satan. It simply says that the serpent was more cunning, more crafty than the other creation, other creatures. And so, uh, well, what was known uh, of creation and angels and demons in that time? Or, or did the Old Testament saints even have a concept of Satan as an individual enemy of God? That's how the, the biblical theologian would want to approach that question. And those are important questions, right? We, we would have an insufficient understanding of this, this text if we didn't ask questions like that. But if you ask the systematic theologian, who is the serpent, they would say, he's the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the ancient serpent. He's the father of lies who's been a murderer from the beginning. And why do they say that? Well, because in John chapter 8, it says he's the father of lies who's a murderer from the beginning. In Revelation, it tells us he's the ancient serpent. In different places, we find these different things. And the systematic theologian, theologian draws them all together and says, this is what we understand from the whole of what God has revealed. And so as we look at what God is doing with Adam, and this is important because they're going to, or, or uh, Genesis 3 talks about the seed who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And if we're only reading Genesis chapter 3, and we don't put it in the bigger picture of what God has revealed, we might sit around and scratch our heads and go, well, uh, let's debate and let's go back and forth and figure out what that might mean. But if we understand it in the larger context, we step back and we say, this is Christ. This is the Redeemer who was promised. And already in the, in the book of Genesis, after man's first sin, God steps in to declare the gospel. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And so at the end of the day, both of these things are necessary. Biblical theology helps us to grow into systematic theology, and systematic theology is the fruition uh, of the fruit of, uh, of systematic, of biblical theology, rather. Uh, here are a couple sections from the Westminster Confession that Landon tried to get us to, to point to a while ago. I was put them off. We're bringing them back now, but you need to understand the way that some of these ideas uh, play against one another. And again, I realize this might be getting a little bit off track. This is a good week to do it because it's the first administration of the covenant of grace. It's also probably the most straightforward of the administrations of the covenant of grace as far as the, the material that Robertson has in his chapter. 
If you read it, hopefully it was relatively easy to understand. We are going to come back and we're going to deal with some of his, uh, his arguments and his points. But we're taking a little diversion just to, just to think about not just what have we read, but how do we study Scripture and how do we understand what Scripture is saying to us. The first thing to understand is the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, this is a systematic doctrine as we, as we put together all that God himself has revealed about his word in his word. Westminster Confession of Faith 1.6 says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And it goes on after that. Now, this is different from saying that, uh, that Scripture is exhaustive. God does not give us everything we might want to know, but God gives us everything that we need to know about his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. What should we believe? What should we do? How can we be saved? How can we glorify God? Scripture gives us everything we need to know. It doesn't mean uh, that other uh, comments on scripture aren't helpful. We're reading Robertson. You listen to sermons. You don't just sit alone by yourself in a room reading scripture. Uh, but all of our study ought to go back to scripture and say, what has God revealed? Because God has revealed what is sufficient, what is necessary to be known in these things. On top of that, Westminster Confession 1.7 talks about the perspicuity, which is a really unclear way to say the clarity of scripture. Uh, you know, the, the uh, irony of that, uh, that word there. So the clarity of Scripture, what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Now this has just come after the, the confession saying, everything you need to know is in there. And then they say, not everything's as clear as we might like it to be. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So that's dealing both with uh, the difficulty of reading what the Scripture is telling us and the difficulty of our own understanding. Different people have different levels of understanding. Some might be able to study and understand more of Scripture. Some might not be able to understand and study more of uh, that much of Scripture. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. What does that mean? Well, not everything is as clear as we would like to be. We, we might still puzzle and, and wonder about uh, how do the persons of the Trinity relate to one another? How do we figure out some of these great doctrines? Even Paul at times has to end by saying, oh, the glory and majesty of God, how inscrutable his judgments, how, uh, how his ways are beyond finding out, right? Even Paul has to say, I don't know everything I wish I could know. And there are some doctrines that, that will remain unclear to us. But what we need to know and believe and observe for salvation is so clearly put down that if you read it with even a, a normal use of human understanding, the message is clear. Now, we still need the Holy Spirit to apply that truth to our hearts in a saving way, but Scripture condemns those who read it because the message is so clear. In order to be saved, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under, he under heaven by which men must be saved. Plain and clear. So that's the, the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. But uh, the issue that we're really dealing with is the interpretation of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is clear. But what do we do when Scripture is not as clear as we might like it to be or our understanding isn't as clear as we would like it to be? This is Confession 1.9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, we can get into that if you want to, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This goes to that issue that I was asking or, or bringing up about the serpent. Who is the serpent? Well, is he just a creature? Is he just uh, like any of the other beasts of the field? Was uh, the garden originally like Narnia, where the animals could speak, and here was one who spoke in a different way? Or 
do we say with the rest of Scripture? Well, John tells us in, in Revelation and in the Gospels uh, who he is, that he's the accuser, he's the father of lies, he's that ancient serpent. Well, that's where we have to come away in, in some of these things, measuring Scripture with Scripture. So what are we doing as we go through uh, looking at the various administrations of the covenant of grace. We're taking little slices, and we're comparing them with other little slices so we can get the larger picture. Everybody understand uh, where we're going with that? I realize this, for those of you who have been in the church a long time, this might be a really, really basic concept. But the reason there are so many disagreements, one of the reasons that there are so many disagreements among believers is that we're not all doing this the same way, right? We like to proof text sometimes. We like to take that one slice and say, well, it says here and here only, uh, you know, it says in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so the church of Christ says, in order to be saved, you must receive water baptism. You must receive water baptism in their church. Well, we could go to... Peter and say, well, baptism saves, actually. We can affirm that, but not by a removal of water from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience, right? So there's a spirit baptism that's happening, and we compare scripture with scripture. But when we don't do that, when we just grab our own little individual text and we say, here's what I've found, and here's uh, the only place that it speaks to this, and we ignore the larger picture, we will inevitably ignore what God is actually trying to teach us and how he's trying to lead us to himself. Last statement on uh, this, uh, this joining of systematic and biblical theology. This is Gerhardus Voss. He says, the line of revelation is like the stem of those trees that grow in rings. Each successive ring has grown out of the preceding one. But out of the sap and vigor that is in this stem, there springs a crown with branches and leaves and flowers and fruit. Such is the true relation between biblical and systematic theology. Dogmatics, that's systematic theology, dogmatics is the crown which grows out of all the work that biblical theology can accomplish. So the purpose of, of what we're doing is to get this larger picture, but we're seeing it little by little. Uh, I was looking for a diagram uh, that, uh, that I found or that I received when I was in uh, undergrad. I, I took a, um, I think it was a biblical theology class, one of my Old Testament professors, and he gave us this diagram. I know there's a diagram in uh, Robertson earlier when we were page 62, this thing, and if you could decipher that, good for you. Uh, I wasn't really entirely sure uh, what he was doing with that. Uh, I think this is a much clearer diagram, what I'm about to show you, um, but I couldn't find it anywhere, so I had to make my own. Uh, and it is the Covenant Theology Birthday Cake. Now, when you do a Google search uh, for Covenant Theology Birthday Cake, you will not find a diagram like I'm about to show you. You will find a lot of actual birthday cakes uh, with references to Covenant Theology, which is really interesting to me. Um, but here, here you go. When we think about the relation of the covenants, it is one big picture. And so the way I saw it, there's just a, a much simpler way to understand it. Your first layer is the covenant of works. And on top of that is the covenant of grace. And then you've got all your candles. And they're just different administrations of the covenant of grace. They're uh, the sort of uh, the individual vignettes, if you will, of what God is doing. And so if you're confused by this, if you look at this and say, I don't know where these dotted lines are and what's going on, just remember uh, every time you blow out your candles, God is doing something. He's, he's giving us uh, layers that he's building into one greater picture. Okay? Now, uh, let's talk a little bit more specifically about, uh, about what's going on in this chapter. And, and here, uh, at the end of chapter 6, Robertson gives uh, a three-point summary. I saw a four-point summary, uh, or at least I liked four points from his chapter that I, I think are big, important concept takeaways from this chapter. We're going to go through these, and then we're going to open it up for, uh, for some discussion for the rest of our time together. The first big concept, I think, is, is the idea that in the covenant of grace, what we see is God's initiative to uphold his own glory. He's challenging us. Robertson's challenging us to see the big, big, big picture 
of the covenant of grace, not just to even see how God redeems man, but to see how God defends his own glory. So he says, page 95, God's glory as the great creator has been assaulted. His handiwork has been disharmonized, not simply for the sake of man, but for the glory of God, redemption is undertaken. Now we see that here first in the garden. But again, as he told us earlier, everything that shows up later is here in seed form. We will see this over and over again as we, as we read throughout scripture. Think about the Lord showing up uh, to and speaking to Israel, not for your sake, O man, he says in Deuteronomy, not for your sake, but for my own glory. Uh, I, have, I have drawn you out. Uh, he speaks the same way in Ezekiel when he's, uh, he gives us that image of, of Israel as this unwashed child thrown out and discarded. And God comes in and loves her, and yet it is for his own glory when you get to the end of that chapter. right? Because the, the bride continues to go astray and continues to go astray. And the Lord brings them back and continues to nurture. And we see that at the end. Obviously, in, in Revelation, we can see God's people gathered around his throne, but it's the glory of God that takes center stage in Revelation, right? The creatures falling down, casting their crowns at his feet, singing new songs that we in God's grace someday will sing together with them. And the focal point is not even on the redeemed, but on the redeemer. And that's the first important thing that we need to see, and I think uh, Robertson brings that out. Second is this idea of redemption accomplished through conquest. He says in page 102, inherent in this imagery of the accomplishment of redemption through the victorious overthrow of the seed of Satan lies a principle of God's dealings which has continued throughout the ages. The deliverance of God's people always comes through the destruction of God's enemies. And then he quoted in chapter 6 our Old Testament reading from last week. Did anybody see that? Last week our Old Testament reading was the beginning of John, uh, Joshua chapter 10 where the five kings of the area uh, were brought and the leaders of Israel were told to put their feet on the necks of these kings to demonstrate that God was crushing their enemies underfoot. Today we're going to continue in Joshua chapter 10. We're going to see further conquest. We're going to see Joshua and the armies of Israel slaying the enemies of the people of God and taking over the land in this conquest of the southern area of Canaan. And we're going to see it over and over again. And so we see this again in seed form showing up later. It shows up ultimately in Jesus Christ. We see it also in this discussion between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see it in, in Romans chapter 16 where uh, Paul says that God, the, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, plural. That there's this conquest that takes place. It takes place uh, personally through Jesus Christ, but it extends to God's people. And that's the third point, uh, important concept, that redemption is fulfilled by an individual redeemer. There's this victory, there's this conquest. Page 106, in due time, one representative man was born of woman. The single man entered into mortal conflict with Satan. Though bruised himself, he nonetheless destroyed Satan's power. And by this struggle, he accomplished redemption. We see that first of all in the garden, uh, in the promise that he will crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we see it played out in Jesus Christ. But in between, we also see it in the leaders that God establishes. We see it in the Davidic covenant. In our prayer meeting this week, we prayed together uh, Psalm chapter 20, where everyone is praying for the victory of the king because they know that as the fortune of the king, the anointed one of Israel, rises and falls, so the fortune of God's people rises and falls with that king. And this is the idea that our salvation is not an individual thing, but it is a means of God uniting us to Christ. If Christ wins the victory and yet we are outside of him, if we're not united to him, we are none the better. But what God does is he sends the one representative, the one redeemer and mediator of his covenant, and he unites us to him, and we gain the victory over his enemies and our enemies through that one individual redeemer. 
And then lastly, this idea that we saw in here that God's goodness extends to all creation. Uh, by his sin, creation was cursed. And yet, God gives these promises. Page 105, you shall eat bread. He says, the gracious provision of, God's, of God characterizes the totality of human history from the first day of its announcement until the present. Jesus' reference to the God who causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust testifies the consistency of God's common grace. We can see that also in other places throughout Scripture. God is good. His mercy is over all that he has made. As Jesus says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God gives uh, the creation uh, cycles, spring and summer and harvest and uh, and, and even some of these creation ordinances like marriage that's a good thing, that extends to the rest of creation. Childbearing, uh, the idea of another generation coming after us, this is not restricted to the church. Unbelievers can have children too. Unbelievers can have marriages. Sometimes unbelievers can have really good marriages from one level of speaking, from a, a human standpoint. And these are part of God's uh, common grace, his blessing within creation. And so here, here are four things that I saw, important concepts. Uh, God's initiative to uphold his own glory, redemption accomplished uh, through conquest, redemption fulfilled by an individual redeemer, and God's goodness extends to all creation. So let's get into some of the discussion. Uh, we still have about 15 minutes. I've got some questions there, and if nobody has anything that they'd like to say about what we've just discussed, uh, or any of the questions that are in your, uh, your handouts, I have several that we can go through together. Any reactions so far to what we've seen or just your own reaction to the chapter as you've read it, something new that you found there, something uh, that impressed you or, or challenged your views, or something that you disagreed with even? Let's start with just a, a basic overview. And here's another area where we have to take all of the pieces together. You, you said necessary but insufficient. Absolutely. We do believe that God saves individuals, right? We also believe that God is redeeming a people for himself. That's a collective, right? It's a, it's a corporate people that he's redeeming. You can look at Ephesians. Now, he speaks to the Gentiles. At one time, you were aliens and strangers to the promises of God, without God, without hope in this world. But now, in Christ, the two have been joined into one new man, one corporate entity, one church, one uh, temple being built up in the foundation stones of Christ and the apostles and built into one people. Why is it so important that we gather together for worship every week? Because it reminds us that we're not the only one being saved, right? All of God's people gathered together are a reminder of what God is doing, not just here, in Concord, not just in this century, but throughout time with a much larger uh, view than we could ever have. Absolutely. Thank you. Any other thoughts or reactions? Nick. Gotcha, yeah. Yes, yes. 
And so think about the, the scripture text that he gives us to, to reference that. Well, he gives us Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, where he says, you are of your father the devil, right? Well, they were descended from the woman just like Jesus himself was descended from the woman, right? Uh, genealogically speaking, they're all the seed of the woman, but as we look in scripture, as Jesus speaks there, and as 1 John chapter 3 tells us, Cain was of the evil one. First generation after Eve, and yet the New Testament says Cain had a different lineage. It's a spiritual lineage. Uh, it's not just a genealogical lineage. And so we see this, this spiritual division. And so you're right. We can't look at individuals. We can't walk down the street and seat of Satan, seat of the woman. Seed of Satan, seed of the woman. But every week when we pray for the persecuted church, what we're praying for is the tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? And which one will gain the upper hand in a sense. Uh, when you look in Revelation, let's turn there. And of course, I did not write down the reference, so I'm going to have to rely on somebody to help me find the woman and the dragon. It's chapter 12. Chapter 12. Now, we're jumping midstream into Revelation, and so take my word on some of the symbolism here, because we don't have time to unpack all of these things. Uh, I believe the woman uh, who John is referencing, the, the seed of the woman and the woman in the garden, uh, is emblematic of the church. And you'll see that as it goes through. And the ancient serpent, of course, is Satan. Uh, and we'll see this enmity that continues to play out. Uh, chapter 12, Revelation 12, beginning in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now there's the individual seed. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. And here's the important point that I was getting to. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Who is the seed of the woman? Those that keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And those that are against him, Jesus says to the Pharisees, are not of their father Abraham as they think, but they're of their father the devil because they don't receive him, because they don't believe him, because their desires are set at enmity with God's desires for redemption through Jesus Christ. Cynthia, you're going to add to that? Yeah. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, so there's another good reference that shows us, um, well, they're all genealogically speaking the seed of the woman, and yet there is a spiritual lineage that diverges, and already in the garden, and here's part of, uh, it is a curse for the serpent, it is a blessing for Eve, God says, I will put enmity between the two of you, right? And that enmity will, will continue it is a protective enmity. In the garden, the serpent showed up, and Eve said, oh, that sounds pretty good. I can go along with that. I can agree with what you're telling me. We can be on the same page and be aligned together, and God says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent, between your seed and her seed. And so now the, the children of light and the children of the evil one are divided, and that is a protective barrier for us as children of the seed of the woman, in a sense. Good. Other questions, reactions, 
things that were puzzling in this chapter. Dave? Exactly. Uh, and, and systematics acts as protective guardrails for us, right? If you are, we had this discussion last week after, after church. There's somebody you found online who's saying, well, here's what I believe that I think nobody else believes. If you have a doctrine that you think you believe that you found in scripture and no other Christian in the history of the church has ever believed it, you're probably wrong. <laughs> Let's just put that out there, right? Uh, now, it's not to say that we don't come up with new understandings and, and further refinements, but if, if you find something and all of Christian history says, uh, actually, no, uh, we think that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, right? In the first centuries, you had these theologians saying, ah, I think I've figured it out. I've got this thing. Well, Jesus appeared to be really man, and they would say, no, uh, Socinians, you're wrong, and that's heresy. Uh, and, and so there are these refinements and these, uh, these guardrails that help us as we're reading scripture, right? And so we can read chapter 3 of Genesis, and we can ask these questions, well, who is the serpent? And there are places we can't go, because scripture has already defined for us in other places how we are to read and interpret what we're reading what's before us. Other general thoughts before we, we move into some, with the last five minutes, some, some more pointed discussion. Okay, so here's this one. Um, uh, which Let's look at this one. These are all uh, questions that I've taken from your, your handout, by the way. Uh, you can take those home and, and play along with your families later if you like. The curses pronounced on the woman have to do with birth and marriage. The curses to the man relate to work and death. The question about curses, provision, and commandments. How do these curses frustrate God's good designs? Maybe we should say original designs, uh, because uh, if you understand God's sovereignty even over the first fall, uh, that, uh, you know, we can get hung up there. How do these curses frustrate God's original intention as good design for man and woman together in the world that he created to, to inhabit and cultivate? All right, so, so what is the uh, outcome? What is affected by these curses in particular, uh, birth and marriage and work and death? On the other hand, how do the provisions of the covenant of grace lighten this burden? And then once we've seen the bigger picture, doing a little systematic theology, how do the commands of the New Testament teach us to live faithfully in light of these curses that are persistent. Take that in any direction you want to. Here are the curses, and we've got, we've got curses, provisions, commands. Rob? <laughs> I don't think you've understood my question, Rob. <laughs> That's a, never mind. That's an inside joke. they're going to die because he said it earlier. Yeah. Right. Almost, we use it in a, in a loose sense, almost as something malevolent. God's angry, and because he's angry, here you go. Rather than the organic relation between the sin and its natural consequences. 
Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm not sure how we would, we would take that. Um, I, would, I would certainly say, like you said, God is in charge of those two, right? He declared, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And now that's already in place, right? Before God shows up, there's a division because they knew that they were naked. They tried to cover themselves. They fled from his presence. They were already fearful of God. God didn't need to show up and pronounce that for that to happen. But he does show up graciously to explain it to them. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. I like that. Um, the, other, the other side of that um, is that we don't want to, and here's the, here's the biblical systematic thing, we don't want to downplay uh, the pronouncement, right? Uh, when we think of the other side of the coin, justification is a declarative act, right? God declares that we are justified. He speaks it and it happens. It's the power of God's word. Uh, God speaks creation into existence and it becomes. God, uh, you know, speaks and, and, you know, things happen in a sense. And so when God shows up, he speaks this curse. Maybe there's already a natural relationship that he's worked in and, and declared earlier, but it is really real when he, when he shows up and, and says it. Cynthia, you're going to add to that? Yes. And again, systematic theology, let's, let's hold that in tension with Romans chapter 8. That the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, the creation didn't subject itself, but by him who subjected it, in hope, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So even the frustration, we've been studying Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes, looking at a world that doesn't work the way we wish it would work. And all of this futility and vanity, and God has good purposes for those things. And we are experiencing a life and a creation different from what Adam and Eve had the opportunity to experience if they had remained sinless. And we have to, we have to again, wrestle with the, the sovereignty of God. We can say it's a, it's a real curse. It is a consequence. Death is unnatural, in a sense, right? We weren't created to die. Death came in because sin entered the world, and we saw that in Romans last week, the consequence of uh, the covenant of works. Yeah, good. Well, we're out of time. Mike, one last comment. <clears throat> And there are some parallels there with some of the other aspects that we've already discussed. The curse doesn't create labor. It makes labor frustrating and fruitless. The curse doesn't create marriage roles, but it frustrates the way that men and women interact with one another. Right? And so what's the answer? The answer to frustrating work for a New Testament believer isn't just to loaf all the time. 
sorry, Rob. <laughs> right? The answer, is, the answer is not to say, well, work is bad, so therefore I won't do it. And the same thing with marriage relationships. The answer is not to say, well, men tend to domineer and women tend to not want to submit. And so we'll just get rid of marriage rules altogether. No, we find these things renewed and restored for New Testament believers, and we find wives commanded to submit to their husbands. We find husbands commanded to love their wives, to cherish and to care for them. And so we don't say, well, because this curse has frustrated things, we need to just do our own thing and find our own way. We have to say, how has God re revealed and renewed uh, and given us uh, both commands and the Holy Spirit to obey those commands uh, to, to get to his original intention. Good. Let's pray together, and uh, we'll have some... Scott, one final thought from Scott. Hmm. Hmm. Meatloaf. Huh. All right. What an ending. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that as we study it both in this class uh, and uh, each week when we hear your word preached, each time that we open our scriptures, each time we go to a small group, uh, each time we sit around our dinner tables, uh, that you would give us wisdom uh, to see the whole picture of what you're doing for us in Christ, the way that you're uniting us to yourself, the salvation that you have prepared in the sight of the nations. Lord, help us to rejoice Thank you for this gospel proclaimed already in the garden at the very uh, beginning of sin in your creation. We thank you for stepping in with blessing, and we pray that you would help us to see it and rejoice in it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.